0: Hey, what's up, storytellers? Whether you've been with me or you're a brand new listener, welcome to 88 Cups of Tea's podcast. I love having you along for the ride. And before we get started, I have a quick request. If you're enjoying the show, but you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do that. Your reviews tell new listeners what to expect from the show. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more we get featured so more people can find us, join our storyteller community, and ultimately feel less alone in their journey pursuing the arts. So thank you in advance for that. On that note, I want to highlight one of our listeners who is so awesome to take the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on Apple Podcasts. The storyteller's username is Kat Corby, and she wrote, I found this podcast by searching for interviews with my favorite author, Sarah J. Mass." I was immediately captivated by Yin, the host of 88 Cups of Tea. She asked thoughtful and detailed questions and her unabashed enthusiasm and curiosity filled the interview with a lot of joy. It feels like I'm sitting with my friends talking about books and I love it. This podcast and the community that Yin has built up with it have given me the push I needed to finally own the fact that I want to be an author. Whenever I need inspiration or encouragement in my writing, I listen to this podcast wow cat thank you so much for that really thoughtful review thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to write that and also thank you for taking your time to find us and to join our community and by the way listeners cat is part of our beta version for our accountability challenge for the month of march and cat has been kicking so much butt and she's been showing up every single day to complete her daily goals And each day, she's one step closer to achieving her main goal. And Kat, I am so proud of you. Keep killing it. And thank you so much again for being a part of this community. And I'm so grateful to have you with us. For today's episode, we've partnered with the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. They're producing Bookish in the Berg, the Northeast's newest teen book festival on March 23rd and 24th, which will be packed with fans of young adult literature for a free full day of conversation book signings, and a celebration of all things bookish. I've got a ton of details to share with you, so hang around at the end of the show to hear more about Bookish in the Berg. Now, on to our brand new episode, we have Sarah Ennie with us. Sarah is the author of Tell Me Everything, published by Scholastic, and her short story, The Blessing of Little Wants, featured in the New York Times bestselling anthology, Because You Love to Hate Me. Sarah is also the host of the podcast, First Draft, where she shares meaningful conversations with other storytellers about their unique perspectives on the creative process and to provide more transparency about the professional side of artistic endeavors. In her episode, Sarah talks about vulnerability and finding comfort and strength through stories. We dig deep into Sarah's writing process, the importance of humility as a writer, and tips on managing your time and we discuss the development and publishing process of her debut novel, Tell Me Everything. Sarah was also so thoughtful to create an exclusive writing prompt just for our community, so be sure to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Sarah dash Annie to download her super helpful prompt and to also access all of the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with the timestamps of the highlights throughout our conversation. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone. Uh we have the one and only Sarah Annie on the podcast with us. I am so freaking excited about this and I know y'all are really, really pumped for this as well. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be on the one and only 88 cup of tea.
0: <laughs> Sarah, this is really awesome. First of all, you are a podcaster. Super excited to have you here, and we'll get into first draft podcast as well, but also you have your book, Tell Me Everything, and by the time this airs, it will have come out uh, probably it's the week out. before. Yeah, so that's super exciting, and you have a very fascinating publishing story. There's just so much to talk about, so why don't we just yeah. <laughs> kick it off with uh, how you first fell in love with storytelling?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think I've always... <laughs> Uh, I think I've always loved books and reading. When I was a little kid, I was totally a liar, which is, I don't know if you've noticed this over doing all the interviews you've done, but I hear that from a lot of authors, actually, that as kids, you kind of you kind of have this imaginative impulse and you don't always know where to put it. So as a little kid, I definitely made up some pretty big fibs. Um, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) I found a good place for my imagination. But I was always reading. My family moved around a whole bunch. So we would always, every time we moved to a new state or house, we would find the local library and I would always check out the maximum number of books and just kind of tore through stories. And I read just feverishly all the way through probably like, you know, until I got my like driver's license and uh, other high school homework and other things kind of took over a little bit for a while. But storytelling, moving around a lot also meant that I was frequently in the position of kind of like trying to find new friends or kind of having to reinvent myself. And it led to some lonely moments and telling stories, writing them out, writing poems in my my diary, in my journals. Um, That was all part of how I kind of coped with a somewhat erratic childhood. Mm,
0: I think I might have either heard somewhere or read somewhere that your family is very, very supportive when it comes to talking about books, reading books, and is very encouraging of those habits and lifestyle. Is that, did I get that correctly?
1: You did. Yes, you did. I'm I'm very lucky to have come from a family of really avid, kind of avid story consumers, I would say. So as a kid, especially my mom in my house was constantly reading, still is constantly reading, more than one book at a time, stays up all night reading, all that kind of great stuff. My dad was a reader too, but he mostly nonfiction. But also my dad was obsessed with like um those long ken burns history channel biograph or um documentaries he would just like every 4th of july you turn on the 1774 or 1776 gosh darn ken burns documentary and play it all day um they were really avid and in, interested in new stories new tv shows new movies and not only going to see them but talking about them my whole extended family too still when i when i meet my mom's family we're always talking about what we're reading or what tv shows we just watched that kind of stuff And I've really come to cherish that um, that my family not only wants to consume media, but they want to be critical thinkers and analyzers of it. We want to talk to each other about what we liked and what we didn't like and get to know each other better that way. And that's such an important role of stories in our lives.
0: You were so kind to send over a copy of Tell Me Everything. Yeah. And immediately you could just tell from the first sentence that you're a very strong writer and you've read a lot. Like, you could just tell, like, Moonlin, my girlfriend, was reading it too. And we were both like, wow, Sarah's a really strong writer. Oh, thank you, guys. I just wonder if this is something also, because I love delving into, like, family and dynamics and pressures growing up. Is this something that when you started to work uh, on your work, do you did you ever feel pressure? Because that's something that I've never... I think with my artistry, I never had to deal with that because my parents forget about it. Hell no. They would never even think about artistry. They're very practical, nine to five, and they're not avid story consumers like your family and friends. Mm. And so for me, it was kind of like just me and my grandpa who understood reading and, and writing and art and painting. But for you, did you ever feel a pressure of like, oh, well, mom and dad, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody reads really well and they are critical thinkers and i'm afraid to show maybe bits and pieces of my chapters that i'm working on because they already are so familiar with the reading does that make sense mm,
1: yeah it does that's such a good question that's so interesting um i feel like there's two tracks for my answer on this one the first being uh, and and both of which are to say yes <laughs> i did i did feel pressure <laughs> first the first track is kind of that though my family was really respectful of stories and movies and TV shows uh, and books, certainly so many books, they were still really practical. We moved around so much because my dad was an accountant who was kind of mm-hmm. rising through like the corporate ranks, which was really inspiring to see. And my mom was an administrator. So, like, they really pushed me to do practical things and to want to you know, a lot of writers say this, like, I never thought about being an author. I never Mm -hmm. thought about being a writer, because that just wasn't going to pay the bills. It just was never seen as like a path or a possible career at all. So I always loved writing. But when I went to college, I pursued journalism, because that was just a really practical way to say Mm -hmm. like, okay, what's my skill, I can write. So let's find a really practical application for that. So there was a lot of, it's taken me until like, honestly the last two or three years to be able to say like I'm an artist and to frequently refer to myself that way it, it's always felt a little off um because of whatever whatever I interpreted from my family's relationship to art and whatever I was carrying with that um I'm happy to say that we're kind of past that now and I've started to realize that that was all kind of me putting that on my family and like my family wasn't explicitly trying to to denigrate the arts at all yeah. or discourage me but it was important to like kind of recognize that. I was doing that to myself. And then the other track was, you know, I bet I wonder how many of your listeners will, will um will relate to this, but for the first oh my gosh, nine years or something of me writing, I never showed my then husband and I never showed my mom any of my writing. The first time my mom read anything from me, it was the advanced copy of Tell Me Everything. You're kidding. Like, no. Oh, actually, you know what she read? She read the copy. I had a book that went all the way to acquisitions, but didn't sell. And then my agent and I decided to set it aside, was that, even though we was still loved bright, it. Was
0: that Bright Lights?
1: Yes, that was a book yes, called w- Bright Lights. Yes, I want to get in that too. Um, Yay! Okay. She did she, read that one. Okay, but, so she read so that one. So it took me a long okay. time. Okay. It took me a long time to, to, trust, to trust people or to, to feel brave enough to – because I think because a part of me was like, man, if she doesn't like it, she's going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like and that she's been, up front.
1: I know, she, but she's been incredibly, incredibly, incredibly supportive. So those fears were very, or uh, were, were, again, more what much more about me than about the reality of my mom, who is great.
0: <laughs> Talking about Bright Lights, since that was just brought up super quick, mm. because that, that came up uh, way before Tell Me Everything, and that Bright mm-hmm. Lights was during a time when you were going through a lot like mm-hmm. life changes, moving, the divorce. So, you mentioned that you didn't even mention it to your husband for the nine years of writing. So was that the story of, you would say, like your heart? And and I believe you're still working on that, yes? Like your hopes is to get that out?
1: Yes, it okay, is, amazing. Yeah.
0: Okay, I love hearing that. Yeah. What I find so fascinating is how Bright Lights was the story of your heart, still is. Tell Me Everything came into your path.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So can we just start with, backtrack to bright lights and how a uh, win around the time of your life that was first inspired and what inspired you, uh, you to want to write bright lights?
1: Totally. Yes, absolutely. So kind of contextualizing my path, um, I started writing in 2009, like January 2009, um, and that was in the immediate aftermath of my father passing away suddenly um, in December 2008, and it kind of was a moment for me to realize I always knew I loved writing. I always knew I'd regret it if I didn't write a book. So I really set about in earnest to write a book in January 2009. And then I wrote two books that have never and will never see the light of day. So those books took a couple years, two or three years. And then in 2012, I got the idea for this book called Bright Lights. I'm not even going to try to explain it because the book has changed so much over time. But it was the book of my heart. It's set in Santa Cruz, which is a place I loved when I was a teenager myself. And it's got a lot in it that is of me and my best friends when we were kids. So it's a really personal story. And it's one that I love so much. It got me my agent in 2013, Sarah Burns with the Gernert Company. And um, it went. All the way to acquisitions with a really enthusiastic editor in around March of 2014. So this was after several rewrites, a bunch of editorial work, it got all the way to acquisitions, and then the publisher said, nah, no thanks. So that was that was really rough. That was hard. And then a couple months later, my husband and I decided to split up. And that was um the wake of that was when I started first draft moved from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles with a little six-month stint living with my mom in the middle. And Bright Lights was on the back burner. My agent was like, you know what? You've been beating yourself up over this. You know, the editor, when it didn't sell, she came back and said, listen, if you do this R&R, revise and resubmit, I think I can bring it back and see what they think. And my agent kind of stepped in and said, you know what? You love this book so much. I love this book so much. You just spent two years workshopping it. We really need a break. So why don't you just take some time off and think about something else, write something else, give yourself a breather? And that was really wise advice. I'm so happy that she was there to tell me that at that time, especially because I ended up going through that major life transformation. So I, by the time I got to Los Angeles, I'd actually written another book, which is also, I would say, a book of my heart, a really diff excuse me, a really different book um for the purposes of this conversation. We can call it Val, Val and Cat. Um and that book was really special and important to me, too. And that's also kind of on the back burner. I hope to get back to it. But then in May or, or spring of 2016, living in L.A., doing first draft, kind of having a revitalized relationship with my writing and YA, I got, the, I got connected with Amanda Maceal, the editor at Scholastic, who edited Tell Me Everything. And she and her team had come up with the nugget of this idea for a book She read a little bit of bright lights and said, you know what? Your voice seems really suited for this idea. Why don't we talk about it? She sent me the idea. We got on the phone. I said, I want to write this, but only if I can change XYZ, ABC, GEF, like all of these things. And she was like, yes, you're the right voice for it. Do whatever you want. It's yours. And that was how Tell Me Everything came about.
0: Wow. Okay. That was an insane journey. A lot of info. Yeah. So no, no, no. I love that. Thank you so much. But If you don't mind, I'd like to unpack and rewind a few bits. So I usually gravitate and resonate with the emotional side of Mm -hmm. the journey. And I can't help but wonder, like, I didn't realize that you were going through such a rough time in your marriage at the time, right before the divorce. And you were Mm -hmm. in the middle of, you know, doing all of this, trying to get the book out for bright lights. I'm just imagining myself having an argument with my significant other, Mm -hmm. and it already, it just, my whole mood is just like, and I feel I'm most inspired when I'm happiest, or at least in a calm, balanced state, Mm. or if not, it's really difficult for me to really fully focus, so for you, how was that process like, because that's really difficult, my aunt went through a divorce, it was really hard to watch, and it was really hard just how much it consumed them, that it, it was difficult for them to even sometimes like wake up out of bed because it was just so crippling.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, that's such an interesting question and way to think about this. Like, so, so for me and my marriage and the way that it worked, we didn't fight, we didn't say anything at all. And that was the problem. So uh, for a long time before we finally split and I, w- I want to talk about this, but I want to be super respectful to my ex-husband who was a great, great guy. Mm-hmm. We just weren't meant to stay together perfectly fine. So normal he's a great person. I'm happy, so happy with where I am now. So there's no hurt feelings looking back. But at that time for us, we just were not able to communicate. So I was lonely. I lived, although all my family's on the West Coast, and I lived over in Washington, DC. My two best friends lived in New York, so they were closer, but I was still just very alone. And so that last like year or so, it was really and i worked at home also so i was mm-hmm. just really isolated i think i just channeled every and and the other important thing is bright lights was so i started writing that book when i was working a cubicle job that i really didn't like and i was just sort of yearning for the west coast yearning for a time when i was happier a time when i felt more like life was full of possibilities so that i that was so much of the energy and the emotional emotional weight that I was putting into that book. So probably for the last year of rewriting that book and trying to get it where it needed to be, it was also just channeling like the joy of feeling like I was in Santa Cruz again, channeling the joy of feeling like I was young again. And and pretty overtly looking back on those drafts, processing, shifting, changing relationships, like that's so much of what the book is about. And how the main character is dealing with like Thinking she can control her life and find the best thing for the people in her life. But having to realize that you're not in control and you can't make decisions for your best friends. So I think I was projecting a lot onto the book and escaping a lot into the book for that last year. And then in in the wake of the actual split and divorce, I didn't write for a couple months. That was the road trip when I was um, starting the first draft. And that was huge for me because instead of writing, I was listening I was talking, I was communicating about books, I was reading, I was being in the world and having experiences that were worth writing about, and that was that was really pivotal for me at that time in my personal life and in my creative life, I think. So by the time I got to my mom's house, I left D.C. In, on July 1, 2014, I got to my mom's house early September, and then I sat down and wrote that draft of that other book in the next six months. And then relocated to Los Angeles in January 2015 with that new book kind of in my back pocket and hoping for the best.
0: Wow. Okay. Oof. Thank you for <laughs> sharing that. And um, thank you too, because I know this is personal and I appreciate you being so transparent, opening up like that. You're so damn strong. And no. also I'm so grateful that you had bright lights in a way it was, like you said, escapism projecting onto the book it, in a way, like kind of gave you like that floating that what is that when the floating in the ocean, the lifesaver thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, just real quick, I just think that's important to note. You're right. I mean, like I, I've looking back on the last 10 years, my dad passing away and my divorce happening kind of suddenly. I have always found books to be a total lifesaver in really intense Uh, like traumatic moments and in the last 10 years I realized how much writing creative writing for me is my way of coping with trauma and everything that's going on in my life so it's been a blessing to realize that's how I can process things best
0: yes and also I know this is very belated but I am so sorry about your dad I read um, I read the newsletter that came out recently that you shared with um, Susan Denner and mm-hmm. I had no idea about how that all started. Um, and I'm so sorry about that. I read that and I was like, oh, my heart.
1: Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. It was know. it was awful. But also, I think he'd be so proud with how me and my family have responded in the wake of that. And we're always trying to honor him, which is great.
0: Yes. Oh. I um. do you mind if I, you know, remember reading that you mentioned after your father's uh, memorial service mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you then went to the airport that's where you picked up the first book in the twilight series and yes. that's when you were like oh i mean talk about perfect timing and talk about it you know finding the books again during you know time of loss and it being almost like a lifesaver and um so could you kind of share that moment where it just kind of boom snapped and clicked something in there
1: yeah, totally. It's such a you know, when you go through stuff like this, I wouldn't call myself a particularly religious person, right. but even looking back now, the when you go through something like that, there's moments of kind of grace and yes, and real beauty that that um can get you through some really tough moments. So, it was after my dad's memorial service, which was in the Bay Area in, in California, and I had to fly all the way back to DC. I was in the airport in SFO, and the only book I had was *American Lion*, which is this biography of Andrew Jackson. And I'd gotten that for my dad for Christmas. And some, you know, you're just so confused when you're that in grief. So I was like, "Oh, I'll bring this book and read this." Like, duh, that wasn't gonna happen. So I was at the airport, like, I cannot get on this flight without a book. I'm not gonna sleep, but um, I can't just sit there and be in my thoughts. So, so I was in Hudson Books. And I saw Twilight and was like, you know, what is this? Like, I, I had just so missed all everything about that phenomenon. And it was about to come out as a movie. So I was like, all right, this is worth a shot. And cue me being on the plane for six hours to JFK. And just, I read the entire thing. And I it finished right when the plane was landing. And then I went to get my luggage. And this woman walked up to me and was like, it was good, wasn't it? And she had she had been watching me read the whole flight. She was like, i saw I saw that you just picked it up and didn't finish and or you know, just kept reading the entire flight. And I had to come over here and say, "Isn't it such a good book? I loved it too." And it was such a cool moment, you know, I really I really, you know, book lovers are special to each other. And that was just a really cool moment for her to have noticed that and have joy in that and to come over and be like, "Yeah, let's talk about it." Like it was so lovely. And then, um, then I, at JFK, I bought new moon for my like hour long <laughs> flight to DC, but then I had to go back to work and I had to be a person again. And that was so impossible. Mm-hmm. So I had the four books to read and I started to time my lunch break at work to be w- long after everyone else had eaten so that I could go to the break room alone and just read for an hour every day because I just needed to escape.
0: Mm-hmm. I needed
1: to not talk to anybody. I needed to be in this other world. I needed to be in Forks. I needed to be around sparkly different things. Um, so Twilight completely completely saved me. And it also, it's done this for a lot of writers and myself included. It, it, for some reason, that book was the book that sparked me to be like, you know, I think I could do this. I think I could try this. And I'm I'm forever forever indebted to Stephanie Meyer for that book series.
0: Wow. Okay. Please, please get her on your show. All right. Just oh my god. Yeah. Just it. Do it. Just do it. I'm like, yeah. You, is there a okay. way we can rally and just like bombard her publicist? I'm like, I get know. her on freaking first draft. Seriously. Like, get around eighty cups of tea. This, like, is this is crazy. This is crazy. No, no, no. She needs to know this. Like, you you need to reach out and let her know and like bring her on the show because I love stories like this where. She really did save your life at a very heartbreaking and traumatic time in your life. Totally. I can understand when we're in those states how something that brings some type of spark back into our life, that means Mm -hmm. so much more than anyone could ever explain. Um, Yes. So it's just insane how that book impacted you in that way. Okay, so from Twilight... You took the leap then and can you kind of walk us through bit by bit what were you doing were you going home and writing about like or maybe you were waking up at like five AM. I don't know, like five AM. They have that hashtag five AM club or something, or four AM what? writers Club. The, the, I think they said something on Twitter. I heard someone talking about it. There's like the, for the early morning risers um, on Twitter. Yeah. So you just hashtag it and you could join everybody else who's waking up at that hour, but hell no, that's not me. But I'm I was not... gonna say, you know
1: what? I'm not on five A. M. Twitter, I'll tell you that. <laughs>
0: well, like maybe I'll be at five PM, maybe that. I don't know about you, but please start five PM
1: Twitter. I would love that. <laughs>
0: right? Oh my gosh. But um, So could you walk us through a little bit about um, kind of almost describing your day to day and actually taking that action? And especially when you're still going through such a traumatic experience and such a huge loss in your life, but to actually take that first step is huge and many times very difficult.
1: You know, it's so funny to think about this because my writing habits have changed so, so, so much over time. But when I when i read twilight and said yes i'm going to do this i was working a 9 to 5 cubicle job commuting on the metro so i think when i first started it was like a starbucks in Bethesda Maryland on the weekends like that was most of it and i i wish i wish 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 i could remember like that moment exactly with total clarity but i think it was at that starbucks opening a word document and just being like what does a book look like? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to get started. Even if you've been a lifelong reader, the writing process, you really have to teach yourself what a book looks like and how it feels to be on the inside out. So I started on the weekends and then I started getting up before work. I did. I, now that I'm thinking about it, I've blocked this early morning <laughs> memory, <laughs> but I think I got up before work and would write at, a at, at our table, at our desk. And, um, and then I took a writing workshop. You know, I so encourage people who are interested to do this. You don't have to get an MFA mm-hmm. to be a writer. But it. But for me, I did like going to this sort of community writing center. that had like three hour long classes once a week. And it was, gosh, it was people writing political thrillers. It was adult novelists. It was nonfiction writers. But we all just got together around a table, read each other's work and gave honest feedback. And it was a really, it just gave me someone to be accountable to. I met a couple women there that I still keep in touch with, which is really meaningful to me. That so, so it started kind of in in bits and pieces. The first book was, I think this is true for a lot of people. It was a, it's a mishmash of like every conceivable genre. It was based on a dream I had. I mean, it was just like, sort of, wild. Um, but the most important thing about it was that I finished it. So it was a totally insane, you know, really unworkable, bloated piece of genre garbage that I loved and that I finished and will always love, but will never try to publish. Um, but that whole process did teach me a lot about like showing up, putting in the work, pushing forward, not just rewriting the first chapter over and over again. You know, I I, I was pantsing, which was also wild. I'm very much an outliner now. So it's funny to look back I. I've, I've changed a lot, but it was mostly just like realizing that I felt good while I was doing it and making it a priority every day to do it a little bit. And then when it came to bright lights, I was living in Alexandria and commuting up to Van Ness, which is something that you're uh, – hello, mid-Atlantic listeners, you'll get what I'm saying. Uh, it was like an hour-long commute on the metro. So I would walk to the metro, sit down, open my laptop on my lap. Right Until I had to transfer trains, sit down, open it up, write again, and do that on the way to work and on the way back. And most of that book was written commuting and listening to arcade fire. <laughs> wow, yeah, it was kind of
0: wild, wow. When you're writing on the met commuting, is did you feel like it gave you inspiration? because I, I saw a post recently you were at a coffee shop, and there's something about the energies of different people that really mm. helps to bring out different types of uh energy for your own work mm-hmm. was that something that you feel like you were able to kind of you know just being in new york city myself and um experience the new york city subways i i get i feed off of other people's energy there just going in and out of the trains the subways and all that stuff and the buses so was that something you felt like it helped your work or you felt it was mm, maybe even distracting at times
1: um that's such a good question and yeah you're so right man when you're in New York what well, the thing I love about New York is that you don't have to talk to anybody yes you can just be yeah. among <laughs> people and that then that's like I'm a, a enfp I think so I'm on the very very most introverted side of being an extrovert so I like being around people but not having to talk all the time yeah so it's such a so I think that is what feeds me like but I will say like so I write best in coffee shops I really don't like writing at home. It's hard for me to do it. And I, and more than that, I just don't like it. I prefer to be out in the world where I can uh, – I write in concentrated spurts, like 30 minutes at a time. It's called the tomato method. I'm sure a lot of people know about that. You write for 25, 30 minutes, and then you give yourself a few minutes of a break. So I like when those when those break moments – Looking up, having a cup of coffee, talking to people, or just observing people, getting that kind of electric energy. I want my books to feel like they're happening in a crowd, you know, especially when you write YA. I'm like, what is it like to be in high school? You're having these feelings or and there's so many other things going on around you, you know? Those are those are such hectic wild times with tons of energy and lots of other people around you all the time. So I think it's good to channel that when you're writing it, at least it is for me. But then also I write really well, like say, on a plane, or on a train where you can look out the window and stuff's always constantly changing. I just think that being sort of more in touch with the energy of the outside world is really the comfort place for me as a writer.
0: On that note, what about all the experiences? And this is what I love and gravitate towards you is that you're very much open to all experiences and you love doing different things and you love adventuring like Burning Man. You're a burner. I remember reading recently, was it on Twitter, that you tried improv classes as well. Are these things that feed into your work too to give you, um, I guess, like different uh, ideas for characters and uh, story ideas?
1: Oh my gosh. It's such a joy to talk to you. I'm like, you've done your research today. (laughs) This is so great. Yes, I am a burner. I've been going to Burning Man. This will be my fourth year in a row. Oh my god, I love you. It's my fellow YA writer Kirsten Hubbard, who has been running a camp for nine years.
0: What? Um, So
1: she is like the OG. I know. She is like so amazing. So
0: incredible. I cannot even imagine running a camp. Oh my god, that's so much work. It's
1: it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's so fun. It's so energizing, and you'll love this yin. Our we have a theme camp. I, this is like so boring for people who don't go wait, to wait, bring is it.
0: Is Wait, is this is this a Stardust or the? Um, it's dust
1: and stars. Or yes. sorry,
0: dust and stars. Dang it! I knew yeah. there was something star and <laughs> dust. Sorry, dust <laughs> and stars. I love. Oh, you guys are just freaking awesome. I'm. Oh my gosh, you, you don't understand. I have a huge smile on my face. Burning Man mm-hmm. means so much to me. That's where I fell for Moonland. I didn't know I was into women. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. It was crazy. I think we were out in the district where, you know, where everybody's dancing. And suddenly I realized, holy shit, why am I feeling jealous of other girls coming up to Moonland? And I didn't even know much about her. We were just, I mean, small world, because I noticed that you posted up dinosaur coffee. So Uh and so crazy. I feel like our paths are crossing in so many ways. I'm so excited. Um, and I met her when she helped to start Pine and Crane, this uh, Taiwanese oh. restaurant.
1: Oh my gosh, that yes. restaurant is incredible. You like it? Yes. And, and my friend, fellow YA author Maureen Gu is like obsessed with it.
0: Oh my God, that's an, okay. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, Moonlin's always happy when she hears like even though she's not technically tied with them anymore. She's just proud to know that something that she helped to start is still standing strong and you know leaving yes. her mark there so that's a always nice staple. to hear exactly yeah. so it's just when, when I saw Dinosaur Coffee I'm like oh my god Sarah might know about Pine and Crane this is crazy <laughs> this is a small world but so I met Moonlin at Pine and Crane as a restaurant pay, uh, goer and mm-hmm. um she found out that I was randomly going to Burning Man with my best friend and her boyfriend and she was so sweet to offer that her and her crew they weren't having a camp but they were traveling in a whole pack of like Mm -hmm. six to uh, maybe five to six people she's like hey it's your first time burning so do you wanna i could save a spot a plot of land next to you i'm like sure
1: oh that's so nice
0: right she was so generous and i for like two days before the burning of the man uh towards the end Mm -hmm. of the week uh, we all went out to the district and just started dancing and that's when it hit me i was like wait why why am i having wait are these feelings of jealousy like i don't even get jealous about girl's checking out my ex-boyfriend like right what are these feelings I don't recognize this and I suddenly felt like oh my gosh I wanted her attention and I wow. figured out my own sexuality at much later um around like 27 28 when you think you should know your sexuality by then I didn't freaking know I had no idea it was coming hit me out of left field yeah and that's that's why burning man means so much to me and just seeing like meeting fellow people who go to burning man and have gone Longer than I have, I get so excited. I always want to hear the stories. I'm like, oh my god, yeah. tell me more.
1: <laughs> no, and and I love that story because that is so connected with my favorite thing about Burning Man. Like, like I, I, that is such a beautiful story, and I'm so happy you had that experience. Thank you, thank Obviously, you. of course, it's like life changing for you. But like, isn't it funny how you that everybody has like that Burning Man story? You know, it's yes. such a great place where boundaries get or or walls yes, get lowered. It's, you it's, know, it's, they don't, or
0: there are none, or there are yeah. none just kindred spirits there in one place. And no one's, if you're a judger, then you're in the wrong space. Get out. Then Why you're, are you not yeah. burning man? You know what I mean? So, yep. okay, the temple, when I was walking into the temple and I remember just feeling all the collective energy of people releasing traumas and loss, grief and sadness, and also thanks and gratitude. It was just something really special there and reading the notes that were written and left in the temple. And I can't help but wonder, how has Burning Man played a role in your life with the loss of your father? And also, I know you said you're totally good now with your ex-husband, but also at the time, it's almost like kind of paying respect to the time when it was difficult. Mm. And I think there's so much, maybe I'm just super sensitive. I don't know, like I just hold on to a lot of things from the past.
1: And and for anybody, for anyone who doesn't know Burning Man, people typically know what the man looks like. And that's a, a giant effigy of a human person that gets burned on the Saturday, the last Saturday of the festival. But the temple is this other um, equally important building that gets burned on the very final night of the festival. And it's always built as a place where people can come and write notes and commemorate things that they've lost or things that have they've moved on from in their life. It's always quiet. Um, it's a place for meditation and for mourning and collective consciousness. Um, and it's, like you said, it's incredibly beautiful. Every time you go, you know, you're just going to weep and have this moving experience. And I have to be totally honest with you. I, I, I carry things with me as well, for sure. And the first year I went to the temple and had like an unbelievably moving experience. And I have not gathered the courage to go back because now that I understand what the temple is, mm. I know what I'll have to do.
0: Oh, wow. So I, That's I, I think, deep. That's deep yeah, right man. there. That I is know. freaking deep.
1: So, uh, so I'll have to, uh, at some point I will have to, because Birdie Man means so much to me, I will have to commemorate my dad, commemorate my marriage in some way right. at the temple. And Maybe this will be the year. I don't yeah. know. but, um, But that was...
0: But when the time is right, the time will come. Exactly. There's no rush. And that's the thing about Burning Man and the temple. There's no, first of all, no judgment. And like you said, collective consciousness, but also it's at your own time. You choose totally. when you are ready. And that's, that's not anyone else's place. And especially not my place to say, you know, why don't you try it this year? Or why didn't you try it last? That is not anybody's place. And that's only for you.
1: And nobody understands that better than burners, who are yes. like the least judgmental people, yes. for the most part, for the most part. Yes, There's for all, the you know, most part. a generalization. But um, the other thing I will say about Burning Man and creativity is like, as you know, when you go out there, you can – dress a certain way yes. you can come up or with a new dress. name or not dress at all yeah. yeah you can you can do anything and I am someone I grew up reading fantasy novels uh fantasy sci-fi space opera I'm a big genre reader but my books so far have been mostly contemporary and and I just had this thought the other day actually because I was like oh at fourth year of Burning Man you know what am I how I wonder how this is playing into my subconscious and I think I have truly like a desire at some point to move into writing fantasy or genre of some kind. And I think <gasps> yes. probably my experience at Burning Man is like building that capability within myself. Like you really feel like you're on another planet. You feel like you're in another world. You feel like you're building new worlds when you're out there. And I think I'm, I'm letting this kind of stew boil in the back of my mind before diving into it creatively. But Burning Man is like a place for me to, exercise a lot of that, like imagery that I love. And, um, you know, I, I make, um, our camp dust and stars or a theme camp, which means we put on an event and we started a cult. So Kirsten Hubbard and I started a cult. We just call it the cult. And every time we go to Burning Man, we have a, a cult initiation ceremony and coming up with the Uh, You know, I sew the robes for that. We have, I I made new uh, astrology signs for us. I'm coming up with a new tarot system for us. So there's a lot of ways that I'm like constructing and creatively building through Burning Man that has yet to like explicitly be a part of my work, but there's no way it's not helping. Oh, my God. Sarah,
0: (laughs) you're killing me right now. Oh, my God. This is so funny.
1: Literally no one else is ever going to ask me about this. Oh, my God. No, I'm
0: so happy that we got to talk about this. You have no idea. It brings, oh, my God, it brings so much joy. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I I promise we're going to get more into your book. But please, I need to (laughs) (laughs) squeeze out a little bit more about this burning man. So this, (laughs) the camp, Dustin stars. am I correct in saying that I saw a post of yours on social media? Could be Twitter or Instagram, something. It seemed like you were there for a minimum 10 days, 10, 11, yes. or it was more than the usual, which is usually seven days for listeners jumping in who just go and pop up their tent and then just leave or their trailers. So for you, you were there a bit longer. And was that because of building the camp? Yes, Wow. Yeah.
1: So, so work for us as an, so you and I are chatting on the morning of February 24th. Yes. Um, Burning Man happens on August. It's like the last week of August every year, first week of September. Um, I'm already on group texts with my friends. We have a Slack. (gasps) You guys are
0: so organized. I love it. I mean, we
1: just, (laughs) this week is when our direct ticket sales happen. So we have the early tickets. I am (sighs) always, since I help um, co-run this camp, which again, really is Kirsten's camp, but I'm, I help her um, run everything. We were there for ten to twelve days, which is really a long time. Um, <laughs> but but you you have to go back and build. again. you like especially it sounds like you are so in the in the spirit of the spirit in which Burning Man was intended. Like when you show up to this desert, which is three hours east of Reno, on the Salt Flats, it is. And this is a Brady Man is a leave no trace event, which means every yes. single thing you bring to this event, you take out with you. That includes wastewater, that includes every piece of packaging or the wrapper on your Werthers or whatever. Mm-hmm. You bring it all out with you. That's why they don't allow feathers and glitter, because as you all know, those go everywhere. <laughs> yes. but- so when you build, what we're talking about is like last year I drove the U-Haul, the 20-foot box what? truck U-Haul, into the camp. We unload everything. We build structures, like carports, tents, um, and and cover it with decor and decorate it. And so you just – you're sweaty. You're disgusting. You're mad. You're hungry. You're – totally broken down as a person while you're building this thing up with this group of people that you may not ever see outside of Burning Man. And it is the single most like it's kind of like when you travel with someone, you really you sort of light speed get to know them, you know, because you're seeing each other at the highest and lows. So that's why we talk about Burning Man as being family like a theme is theme camp is a family because these people are people that I see and yell at. Like we are, like we end up just being bonded with blood, sweat, and tears. So literally, (laughs) by the end of the experience, I have helped the camp go from the storage unit in Carson City back to the storage unit in Carson City, T to B, and uh, that experience building something and then breaking it down, sort of getting into the inherent ephemerality of Burning Man, which is also a big part of it. It was huge for me, and the ephemerality is something I'm I'm working with a lot because that also ties into improv and the idea that you're not putting on a play you're you're doing something that will never be seen again and is not being yes. recorded and only has value for the people in it at that time. Yes. Um and and books are different than that, you know. Books are this way of at least for me, I don't know if you relate to this, but for me I'm I'm like fighting against my fear of dying by writing books. Like that is wow. it for me. Like I I'm trying to build something that lasts. That is what it is. I mean in addition to many other things, but I I can't help but feel like, you know, I started writing in the wake of my dad's death, like this feels like something that is me scrambling at eternity. And but I think Burning Man and improv are other ways of me like subconsciously trying to break myself down and be in the moment and yeah, just spontaneity when they are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Oh, Okay. That I, you, you keep giving me goosebumps lady. I'm like everywhere. It's like dot, 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 dot. Oh, we got to go to Burning wow. Man together. Again. I we know about- I need to visit your guys camp. You have no, I would, I, you don't understand. Like I really, no, you do understand. If anybody, you understand. And this is something that Moonlin and I and even, the best friend that I went to, we were, we were all talking about, oh, we'd love to experience a camp one day and to even like set one up. And just the idea of family. I had only a glimpse of this when I was out there. There was a sandstorm that blew through oh, yeah. our, our um, plot of land, well, the entire desert. Yeah. And I was actually in the middle of taking a nap. Uh, my best friend and her uh, boyfriend were uh, off biking and just exploring. I, I remember hearing like, oh, like a lot of banging and, and whirring from the noise of the the sandstorm. And I didn't realize that it was, it was a sandstorm until I woke up and I peeked out and I was like, oh, cool. Like, but I, I think the thing is I kind of have a disconnect at times. Like, instead of realizing the reality of like, oh, shit, girl, you should probably rebar that, that carport <laughs> properly. Out, like, right, I'm like, you're right. like, whoa, so cool. Look at this. Look. Like, I'm like, sand in my eyes and I'm like trying to put the goggles on. And one of the most memorable things, I think, second to discovering that i f- had feelings for moonlin was the people all jumped in they were our neighbors and they all jumped in without mm-hmm. me asking and you're like yeah oh, yeah okay like it seems like one of the stakes is not really working do you have an extra one um mm-hmm. and i was just like looking around i didn't have anything someone pulled one out from their their tent and then another one jumped out with all these hammers um and mm-hmm. they just I think there were about a good eight to 10 people that just jumped in to rebar, retie the entire carport to protect my tent and my best friend's tent. Mm-hmm. And it was the most beautiful freaking thing. And I was trying to help, but they're like, don't worry about you. And we got this. And I'm just like, wait, I'm like running back and forth. But at the same time, I'm also taking moments to stop and just take it in. And my mouth is open. My jaw is dropped. And I'm like, holy shit, this is beautiful. I have never, ever Number one, been in a sandstorm. Number two, see people that I've never really met in my life before, just for Mm -hmm. that one moment that came together to just jump in and do this thing. And I I that's when I understood what Burning Man was. And that's exactly the feeling that I got when and my I started getting goosebumps when you were talking about coming to Burning Man the twelve days before to Mm -hmm. set everything up to just blood, sweat, and tears, and you are family. And I cannot imagine what that would feel like with people that you're actually purposely there with for that short amount of time for you to actually experience that for full 12 days. I mean, even more because you're driving to and from. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I, I, I yeah. want you to write the story, please. <laughs> please. I yeah. want to be the first one to buy it. You please do it.
1: That's so funny. I will say. We'll see, but yeah, no, that's 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 your story is such a perfect encapsulation of what Burning Man really is. One of the major tenets of Burning Man as a organization is radical self reliance. Yes, but I think what you realize when what you realize when you're there and you are practicing radical self reliance, which is, like you said, incredibly important to understand yourself, like as an adult and as a, a person on your own you then just open up and become more generous. Once you yes. realize you can you can help yourself and that you yourself are empowered, what you really want to do is help other people. And yes. so people often are like, oh, Burning Man, isn't that a bartering economy? And I'm like, yeah, no, it isn't, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. It's just people giving each other things. That's all it is. Yeah. It's you needing to bring in what you need to survive and doing everything you can to help everyone else around you survive. Last year, a friend of mine and a campmate of mine uh, jumped off of a really cool swing, landed wrong, and fractured her ankle. And I know oh, it was it was shit. insane. So I went to the medical tent with her. They did an X ray, and they were like, "You don't have to leave, but you have to wear this temporary cast." And my camp went into overdrive, and they built this cart that would go on the back of someone's bike so that she could be taken all around Bernie Man and still you do everything she wanted to do hitting me. It was unbelievable. And she was such a trooper. we, like, decorated the heck out of her crutches. <laughs> we made, her this, we made her this crazy cool cart. Like, if at the minute that burn, that something tries to tear you down at Bernie Man, everybody will jump full speed ahead to help make it the best thing it can be, and those are the moments that really stand out.
0: Yes, absolutely, and you're so right about that because I realized just talking about this, I learned to love myself because I learned to also trust in people again, trust in humanity because they're, you know, when you're growing up, things you know, trauma and all that stuff, you start to build up a wall layer by layer to protect yourself, and that those are the experiences I needed. To then realize, oh, we can do this thing because totally. I people are good by nature. I feel like we're gonna continue this in person and talk more about this. But oh. let's let's reroute this <laughs> <laughs> to your book, and I'm so excited! Your book, tell me everything again. On it's already out February 26th by the time this releases. So a little bit more about it is: can you give us a snapshot of the story?
1: Yeah, totally. So Tell Me Everything is about a young woman named Ivy. She's 15. And she's, um, she's an artist herself. She loves taking pictures, and she's a visual artist. But she's really scared to share her art with anybody. She's very shy. And she gets obsessed with this app that kind of takes off at her school. It's a new app where you can share things anonymously. She's still too shy to share on the app herself, but many other artists around her are posting things on the site. And she gets really invested in finding out who is sharing on this site and wanting to do good things for them. And in the course of trying to do nice things for these people, she really crosses a lot of boundaries and learns the uh, limits, uh, crosses a lot of boundaries and puts some of her main relationships at risk.
0: Thank you for that snapshot. That was brilliant and beautiful (laughs) um, and very well spoken. You're so eloquent. So (laughs) your executive editor at Scholastic, you mentioned Amanda. So she initially threw out this idea. And I remember there was a part because you on your podcast episode. So listeners listening in, Sarah has... Two very informative podcast episodes, one with her agent and one with Amanda, the executive editor at Scholastic. And Sarah goes into full on details about how that all worked out. Please check that out if you're curious about that journey itself. If you don't mind, and I'm sorry if it's going to be a little repetitive for listeners who do end up listening to your episode. It's like a good little snippet here, like a little hors d'oeuvres. I think I remember her saying something about one of the things they kind of wanted to focus on was social media cautionary tales, which I thought was very interesting that she mentioned that. And was that directly tied to why Vail was roped into your storyline for Tell Me Everything?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, just as kind of the baseline origin story for Tell Me Everything, basically, Amanda, my editor, was in a conversation with the people who run books and fairs at Scholastic. And they were saying, you know, kids really like, um, kids are really responding to stories about social media. And, um. trying to think about how to say this so so the concept that amanda came up with the little nugget of an idea did have an app at its core um it was kind of based on the post secret app or the what is that whisper or something right exactly yeah there was those apps for a minute where you could post things without any attribution and so that was kind of the idea but um but the concept for, for Veil, um, I came up with kind of all of that. It's oh. an app that you can post to anonymously. It blurs out faces, X's out proper nouns. Um, and it only shows you things that are posted by people within five miles of your current location. So all those details are things I came up with. Um, and And what's funny is that you know, of course, they say cautionary tale, and we as writers for young adults know, like, that's not how you talk to kids. You know, like, mm-hmm. you want you want to write a truthful story about how social media interacts with your life, and we all. But well, the funny thing about social media is, it makes kids of all of us. That's the iPhones have only been around for like ten years. You know, like we're all new at this. So, I was really exploring my own feelings about. You know, Instagram and Twitter and how those things play a role in my life. They've been hugely transformative in my life. Twitter brought me most of the friends I have now. Um, so I'm grateful to social media. At the same time, I'm deeply unnerved by it. The villain, the quote-unquote villain and Tell Me Everything is the creator of the Veil app, whose name is Rake Bernkazerg, and that's an anagram of my Mark Zuckerberg.
0: Oh, um, my God, I didn't even realize that. Yes,
1: yes, that's how I came up with it. And to me, I really wanted to have, it's a subplot. I don't even know if people reading the book will pick up on this to the degree that in which I was thinking about it. But it was really important to me to explore the idea of accountability so the people that create these things like Silicon Valley, I'm not deeply suspicious of people who use social media. I'm deeply suspicious of people who created it mm-hmm. and what they intended and what they considered before they unleashed it in the world and how they're thinking about it now. You know, we know that they have used sociological studies and, and things like that to ad- adapt the apps to encourage you to use it all the time. You know, they're manipulating us on purpose so that we use those products more. And only now are we coming up against the fact that that's not good for people. It doesn't make you happy to be online mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so anyway, that's that's a subplot. It's, this book is really more about Ivy discovering her voice as an artist and and realizing that she has to stand in her own power and actually use her name and be, be present and in the moment with her own writing and life. Um, but definitely an, a th- subplot I was interested in was Silicon Valley and the world around social media and how we interact with that in our everyday lives. I you know
0: you mentioned that this was just a small idea that was brought to you that was not fleshed out. And from what I remember from your episode with Amanda, the executive editor at Scholastic, she didn't tell you too much because she wanted to respect your work and let you thrive in your own way and your own voice, mm-hmm. your own tone, and really have freedom with it. And like you guys mm-hmm. were saying, having agency and ownership. I'm so curious, what exactly did she come to you with how how does she approach you with it
1: one of the reasons why I want to talk about this so transparently is that I want to encourage people to think about writing as a career and as I just I just want to be upfront about this kind of thing IP projects and projects that are developed in this way happen constantly so I think it's more important to be thinking about them and to not feel like there's any I don't know like it's any less creatively valid than any other form of writing. So anyway, that's why I wanted to share that that those conversations with my editor, especially about how we developed them because even though she, she did present me with a couple of paragraphs and it was like, so she came up with the name Ivy. She came up with the name Harold, which is Ivy's best friend. But it was really like super broad emotional arcs and like the concept that she really is into an app and that whatever she does on the app, causes trouble in her real life like it was that broad and and what they had proposed for the final half of the book was something that I said I didn't want to do and I wanted to take it in this other direction so like it was very broad initially and then I even said even based on this, I want to make big changes. But Amanda just knew the kind of tone that she wanted for the book. And she's she, what, from what she read of Bright Lights, she trusted that that was the kind of tone I was going to bring to the project. So she was like, you know what? From here on, I am totally hands-off. And I'm just approaching this like any other editor with any other project. Um, and I came back to her with a synopsis and we got on the phone and I wrote one draft and then had to burn that down and wrote another draft. And then I burned that down and wrote the final draft. So like there was a lot that went into it. And by the end, I mean, it's just I, I was going back and rereading that initial email recently. and It's like, wow, this is definitely a hundred percent my book. And even if you have IP that is much more structured, even if you're someone who is looking at a who is writing a book where there's a detailed outline, that's still your book. You have to get in there and write that book. Those those are your words. Your your filter of life is in every page. So that's it's something important to keep in mind like we as writers need to own our writing no matter how it's able to be in the world
0: mm-hmm. and if you're getting
1: paid you're getting paid that's exciting
0: yes it is it, being able to make a living out of your artistry is a huge thing um, and that's just as validating you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so I, this is a really embarrassingly Basic question, but IP—that jargon does that oh, yeah. mean intellectual property? It does. Okay, just
1: like I'm like, Yeah, no, no, that's actually such a good question. I, I, I get upset Sorry, with myself I... I realize I've used jargon. And, no, and no, no, need... no,
0: no. I because I think this is something that probably everyone in the community knows except for me. So I'm just like, just to double check. Um, okay, that's such a great point that you bring up and and i absolutely agree with you and here's something that i actually did want to touch on and ask you because you know it is every much as part of your project if it's more of yours because you're doing Mm -hmm. the actual work you're laying brick by brick exactly emotionally again like on the emotional side you know what maybe i'll share like how i think i would feel and then you tell me how you, you you feed off of that so yeah i feel like if i were given that wonderful opportunity, right? And this wonderful chance came along where it's like, okay, there's this um, opportunity that I can take and do my work and my craft. I think I would probably take about a a good week and really discuss, I think, well, first think to myself, then discuss with my agent and discuss Mm -hmm. maybe with my loved ones who I trust that I can share about my artistic dreams and career. Is this something where... Is it my ego getting in the way because the debut is my debut? You know what I mean? Like, I think maybe maybe my I don't know, maybe I'm just the only person thinking that. But like as in like the debut, let's say if I was working on something for five years and I I'm very stubborn in that way where I might be working on something for five or 10 years or even 15 years. But then this incredible opportunity comes where it's like, all right, it's basically a green light. I should take it because it's just as much of my project but is this right now my ego making me hesitate because it's like debut is such a big deal. Debut is your first baby coming out into the world. Is it worth it for me to hold off like a little bit longer to see what else I could do? I'm I'm not really sure how to formulate the question for that, but
1: yeah. Y- no, yeah. I'm I uh so you and I are very similar. <laughs> when you're a writer, you have to have at the same exact time unbelievable humility and like really open heartedness to the world. Mm -hmm. And at the exact same time, you have to be a complete Mm egomaniac. Like there is something really inherently, well, now we're getting into kind of therapy, but there's something inherently selfish about thinking that someone should spend 300 pages with your thoughts Right. Yes. Yes. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't I think of wanted, that way. You're so smart. right. You're like, right. <laughs> I. I don't want to. I still think. Uh, listen. We all love books. We all love being lost in those worlds. We all know what it means to willingly fling ourselves into 300 pages of someone else's thoughts. But at the same time, being a writer, I've had to mentally work through that, and having. And, and I'm also a, the kind of writer who has. I have m- far more ideas than I have years on this earth like I will never run out of ideas that's just how my how I am as a writer so I had all these books and these projects that I really loved and the fact that my debut is one that came about in this different way has definitely been on my mind and it's definitely shown up in my therapy sessions and it definitely Mm. was part of like every debut writer has this like feeling of imposter syndrome and that was definitely like another domino in that kind of uh, f- f- what's the metaphor I'm searching for? I don't know. But that was a part of my debut processing um, that I had to deal with. And it was a lot of like examining my pride, examining my ego, examining what things that I say outwardly versus things that I feel inwardly. And actually, I think at the end, it was a matter of looking back at the book and being like, no, this is my book. This is my project. This is my baby." Maybe. And I'm I'm super proud of it, and it's also the opening point of a career. So that was another thing that helped me was like refocusing this as being like, this is tell me everything. It's my debut. It's so it's so exciting, but something that helped me work through these all of the uh, enormous number of feelings that come up when you are a debut author was thinking it's it's only one brick in the career that I'm building. Mm. And that is something that just helps you step back, helps you contextualize your feelings, helps you think more broadly.
0: Yeah. Bigger picture.
1: Exactly. And so the book's about to come out in two days, but, um, but two weeks ago I sent a draft of a rewrite of bright lights to my agent so the whole time I just have been continuing to work continuing to look beyond this continuing to think more actively about what's what's up next year what's up the year after that and that's really helped me like that would be like the number one advice to anyone going through their debut is like have other things going on uh, it's been so helpful to me
0: damn that was so good <laughs> part of your journey getting to tell me everything you mentioned. I think it was in the agent episode near the middle where you're like, Oh, I put you through a lot. And like, I, (laughs) you know, um, like you were listing out, it was such a good episode. Like you're listing out the entire path. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. that when, you know, got divorced, moved cross country, started a podcast, set up with a couple of ghostwriting projects Mm
1: -hmm, and then mm -hmm.
0: wrote, and and I was like, Whoa, wait, what? And you even had time to write a ghostwriting project. (laughs) She is. Oh my God. You're so badass. I don't know how, I don't know how you do this. So, um, do you no really? This is a lot of work. This I and like your agent said as well. A little spoiler alert. She was, she commends you for being the type of person. You show a lot of character. You bounce right back when let's say bright lights wasn't going through at the time. You bounce right back. And you're like all right, let's keep going, and um and I was like there nodding my head along with her. I'm like yeah, get it, Sarah. <laughs> so, so with this ghost writing project were you like, whoa, okay, I could pay rent?
1: Yes. So I did the ghostwriting shortly after moving to LA. I was a little bit in debt. I was kind of freaking out. Uh, My career wasn't where I wanted it to be, all those things. And someone helped me connect with a guy who assigns people ghostwriting stuff and helps with ghostwriting projects. And uh, with the help of my agent, Sarah Burns we coordinated that. And actually the two ghostwriting projects that I worked on, which of course I can't tell you who, what it was for or what it was, they, they, I don't think they ever got published actually for a number of different reasons. So like, you know, it's, it's really extra funny to be like, wow, I got paid and then nothing even happened to it. Usually that (laughs) happens in Hollywood, but not in publishing. (laughs) So for one project, I wrote a book in a month and got paid $10,000. I mean, like, that's a lot of money for one month of work. Like wow. so it was it, it was a huge deal for me. It came at a really important time for me. I do kind of miss it. I I look back kind of fondly at that book that I wrote and was like, "Man, I put a bunch of good jokes in that one."
0: If it didn't go anywhere, can you recycle that and use it for your own work?
1: Um, I think I could, I could probably recycle those jokes if I wanted to, but I certainly couldn't do, uh, the characters or the plot arc or any of that kind of stuff, nor would I want to, you know, they were really different kinds of books. Very specific to that person. Yes. But also it was so cool to stretch myself in that way and be like, oh, this is not something I'd ever come up with on my own. How can I approach it? And how can I still have fun writing this, even though it's so different from what I would do normally?
0: Yes, I love. I mean, I just imagine a sitcom actor uh, mm-hmm. stretching themselves and trying to do a really huge guest role in Law and Order SVU. You know, I just imagine that, and that that's so fun. You get to play. Uh, what yeah. a great practice. Um, so, Sarah, if you don't mind, um, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for being so generous and giving us so much of your time. Oh yeah. Um, do you mind if I can weave in listener? Because you got a lot of listener questions. And oh, cool. Let me know um, if there's a limit, but we I. Gathered five. Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, one, two, three. Four. I have gathered four. It's just chunks. They're like a lot of questions. Cool. And but they. I was reading through a little bit of it really quick, and they weave in pretty nicely. So, um okay. The okay. First one we have from Jillian Foley. She said, I would love to hear how Sarah balances her writing with her podcasting and other work. As someone who also is working on multiple self-directed projects at all times, I find it overwhelming to know what to work on at any time and would love to hear how she handles it. And I thought this was perfect because I wanted to ask about First Draft Podcast. So this Mm. is a great way to like weave it all in.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, that is a great question. And I think as Jillian probably knows, the answer is like, Uh, You try your best all the time. um, And it really, it really changes when you are a freelancer, your time is so, um, it's hard to have a routine because the work uh, kind of ebbs and flows and it can be unpredictable. What I do is I try my best to provide myself with structure. So I have a workout class I always go to. Mm -hmm. I have um, my improv classes actually helped with that. I've been doing improv for like a year. And when you sign up for a weekly class, it means you're there at that time regardless. And you can structure your day around that. And that I find really helpful. With the podcast, I did get help the help of a producer, so I've been working with Haley Hirschman, my producer, for about a year now, and she totally saved my butt because, um, as you know, editing a podcast is time-consuming and challenging.
0: Yes, and I it was, can lead to burnout, too. It's really – got to be really careful.
1: Oh, yeah, and I was totally at the burnout stage when I yes. got Haley's help, and Haley has been um, – completely pivotal to first draft continuing oh, and uh, now I'm I know I'm like so grateful to her and so now I focus with the podcast I focus on booking guests on preparing for interviews doing the interviews uh, reviewing I mean I still do a lot of work for the podcast but it's more manageable now that I'm not editing the episodes um, and with my books and I, I i just went on vacation with my family and was thinking a lot about this like how can I make sure that i'm continuing to write because i've just noticed that every day that i write i'm so much happier Um, mm-hmm. so much happier so i'm thinking about doing something that my friend uh samaya Daoud does where she has two hours of every day that are just fiercely protected for her writing time and even if say you're taking a week off of writing then those two hours are still like maybe reading or maybe just zoning out and going for a walk. Like I'm thinking about going forward, like really being fierce about saying this time during these two hours, I'm not answering emails. I'm not going on Instagram. I'm focusing on either writing my book or doing something related to my book or my creative life and just like feeding the well in that way. So that's something I'm trying going forward. But the answer is it's tough. I'm always working. I'm always on, um, there's always something that could be done, but I'm trying to be better also at realizing like I'm spinning at this point, I'm spinning my wheels and the best thing to do is to go to sleep <laughs> or yeah. like, you know, right now I need to just like get up and, and go hug my cat um, or or making, I'm a huge to-do list person. So I have a bullet journal where I make massive to-do lists because it just helps me to have it all written out and then yes. I can prioritize from there. So that's something I really recommend. I have a bullet, a little moleskin bullet journal with me at all times. Um, and then getting help where you can. You know, I'm going to continue. I'm, I'm actually trying to... I have an assistant. I'm trying to find someone to help with social media for the podcast. Like see where you can delegate uh, and and do the best you can with that because I think a lot of us are uh, kind of control freaks. Writers tend to be that way anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, So uh, being able to accept help and delegating is, is a big part of the process too.
0: Tracy Kenworth, the next person, she said, "I read your story in Susan Dennard's newsletter. As someone who has also been through the fire, so to speak, I salute your courage. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your process."
1: Oh yeah, well, I mean, interesting. Interesting to hear her say process. So we talked a little bit about how I how I wrote initially, but I will say that like now, um, ten years in to creatively writing, I'll say my process for for writing books has changed a lot. So like. I get, um, I get like ideas. Um, what? How do I want to say this? I'll get like plot first as a concept for my stories, and then I will really write out. Um, I'll let it like kind of stew in the back of my mind, and I'll write out like an outline or a couple of pages of a concept for how the book would go. Um, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of planning now before I dive in to write a book, Um, just because I write better when I have any idea of what's going to happen next, even though that changes all the time while I'm writing. Um, So I'll have an outline that I kind of adjust and shift as I go. So as far as process goes, I'll say that's what I do. And I'm usually I'm someone who will get, get into the groove sometimes. And then I'll write a first draft in like six to eight weeks, take a bunch of time off, Go back and revise for a really long time, revise again, revise again. Um, so I'm I'm a big reviser, but it takes a while for me to kind of really feel like I have the fuel to get that burst to do a first draft. So, if that helps <laughs> at all.
0: Perfect. Thank you. So the next question is from Katerina Haibanova Co says, she put four clapping hand emojis, and wrote, I'm super happy that Sarah Ennie will be on the show. I've been listening to her podcast for years, and she's a thoughtful, Yay. gentle interviewer. So agree. And at this point, feels like an old friend. I am sure her debut novel will be just as lovely. My cue, how do you find energy? Oh, this is funny. We just talked about this. How do uh-huh. you find energy to grow both your podcast while maintaining a novel writing practice? Uh, practice both are very creative pursuits with little guaranteed return on investment also you are awesome for real
1: no I've had to sort of examine how I think about first draft and writing and I'll say that I fully think of my creative writing as my as as an author And first draft me as a podcaster, I I see them as being a yin and yang working together. I just think that they are inextricable from each other. They both help each other. And I work hard to say like sometimes I'll go through phases where the podcast is getting a lot of attention and I have to think to myself like the podcast exists so that the writing can exist. And sometimes I get really into the writing kind of cave and I ignore email for a couple of days and it's like the podcast helps the writing exist so you can't ignore that. So it's always a dance, but I'm a big Believer that rising tides lift all boats, uh, kind of shine theory, uh, as the the writer Ann Friedman coined. Shine theory is just this concept that good things happening to other people around you helps you. So that's the 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 driving force behind First Draft, and also within my own work, they both help each other. So when they thrive when one side thrives, they both thrive. And I'm just so excited to be having the debut book come out now because then it really, they both can sort of step in tandem. The podcast has existed so long by itself. I'm now really thrilled to move into the stage where like my books coexist with the podcast. And those two things can kind of work together. And people who like the podcast can read my books and people who like my books can check out the podcast and all that good stuff. It all helps YA because I'm helping promote the voices of the writers I love the most. So I, I see it as just sort of, one big puzzle piece that's all, they're all working together to create what, I, what I'm working towards. Oh,
0: I love that answer, though. So <laughs> good. Okay, next one we have from Allison Doherty. I love this one. Um, she wrote, first, I just want to say how much I love your podcast, Sarah. It actually got me into podcasts and then led me to 88 Cups of Tea. So thank you, Sarah. Hooray. These are my two favorite podcasts. So I'm excited to have Yin and Sarah in one episode. And There's three exclamation marks here. Yay. (laughs) Here's my question. Does it get confusing having so many conversations with writers and having all of their opinions and advice in your head? And a second question, if there is time, what are some of the pieces of writing advice you've heard that have been the most helpful to you in your writing?
1: Oh, that was Mm, such a good question. Well, and thank you for all these questions for there's such kind words. It's so sweet and so nice to hear that people have felt so fondly about the podcast. Oh, please,
0: girl. You are like a (laughs) legend. Are you serious? How excited the community is? Oh, my gosh. This is awesome.
1: That's so great because I know, I mean, I think tons of people find first draft through 88 cups. So that's like so great. Um, That is so interesting. And that's a really like astute observation for her to have, I think. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and if 88 comes in first draft after her two favorite podcasts, then it sounds like she likes the kinds of ones that I do too, which are like long conversations and in-depth interviews and a lot of different voices and opinions. So there will will be some days where I do get confused. I'm like, wait, did I talk to someone about this? Or was this a podcast? Am I thinking like, like, my my brain will get overloaded with lots of different voices. And those are the days when I need to like, listen to music or just not listen to anything at all and just have some quiet time with my own thoughts. But I have discovered and this sounds so kind of strangely simple. But I've realized that a chief joy in my life is conversation. And, and I guess I didn't realize that that is kind of a unique thing. Like, like, I don't like going to the movies because it takes away from time. I'd rather be like talking to the person that I'm going to the movie with. Like it's taken me some time to sort of like realize that that's what that impulse was. I am just always hungry for conversations that, that go past the, that go into the abstract that go deep, that talk about ideas and philosophies and themes and, and that kind of stuff. So I don't think, I feel I feel like that only feeds my my personal well-being and also like my um, creative life. So so I don't I don't think about it that way. And then I get this a lot and I guess I should have anticipated this more with the book coming out, but I get this question a lot. What is the best advice you've heard from first Draft? I mean, everybody who's listened to first Draft has heard the same thing that I have, so like they all have their own their own ways of thinking about it. I mean, there's certainly there's advice that gets told over and over again, like read a ton of books and write all the time and give yourself space away from writing. Like those are all really important things. But I think the things that that stick with me the most from the from the podcast and from all those conversations are like just little ways that people have of describing their process that kind of unlock things for me or help me see things in different ways. Like I often refer to the Libba Bray uh, conversations that are very early episodes of First Draft. Libba Bray is just like a brilliant genius anyway, but she had a way of talking about your particular way of looking at the world. And she said, it's like your particular head tilt. And that's just something that I always think about because a lot of people get worried that they're going to write that someone else is writing the same book they're writing, and they gotta get it out there and before somebody else does. And so, so trends are important, or are, are like an inevitable thing in our industry. I just, I, I so want everyone to feel confident that they are the only person that can tell the story they want to tell, the way they want to tell it. Like there is no replacing you and the filter that you have in the world that's so unique, and you have to really trust that and believe that. Your unique viewpoint is what's going to stand out in your writing, and I think that's something I've really internalized and and come to feel like is my strength as a writer. Like, there's only one me, and there's only one way that I, that Sarah Annie can tell a story, and that's all that I have to do. I don't have to write the great American novel. I have to write the great Sarah Annie novel, and that's it. <sighs>
0: God, that was so good. There are so many quotables right then and there. All right, side note, Rachel, when you're listening to this part, please grab all those quotes that's going on Sarah's show notes page. Damn, that was so good. Thank okay, you. I just you gave me goosebumps yet again, lady. All yes. right. So the next and final question from our listener is Fernanda de Avila. She wrote, okay, this is a lot
1: of oh, A's. Fernanda, she's like, I recognize her from my comments also. Hi, Fernanda.
0: Oh, awesome. I'm so happy. I'm sure she's going to be so happy to hear that shout out. Thanks. First of all, she wrote, Ah, like yes. a lot of A's, <laughs> like a lot, like, ah, like it's going okay. on and on. And she's like, finally, with all <laughs> caps, she said, My prayers have been answered. I just read the first chapter of Tell Me Everything and it's stunning. And she put a heart emoji. Oh. She wrote, question, question. How do you make setting come alive when you write a contemporary novel? Most most of the world building advice I encounter has been for fantasies. And yours is so amazing. Love that I get to hear you guys in one podcast. Ah, all caps. And a lot of heart eyes emojis. She's so cute.
1: <laughs> okay, that makes me so happy. Um, you know what's so funny? This is when you write in, do you write genre or are you writing contempt? I forget. I will
0: be very honest. I have been terrible and haven't really been writing. But okay. if I ever do, and when I do, I don't even know what I'm writing. And it's embarrassing to say that. You would think by now I would have learned what it means, like what genre or contemporary. I just write really based off of stories that I've heard of. Um, there's a story I'm focusing on about my grandma that I never met. Um, and she was... Uh, She basically left the family because she was terribly abused by her in-laws, very physically and verbally abused by her in-laws. And then um, had to leave my mom and aunts um, when kind of like they were teens. And one of my aunts was like a kid to a Buddhist temple. And um, I kind of had a I'm trying to figure that out uh, because she passed away. I wasn't allowed to meet her even though she's alive. So that's I don't even know what that is. Like I, I, just know that that's a story I've always been interested in, and because my grandma, even though I never met her and we weren't allowed to see her um, while mm. she's at the Buddhist temple uh, as a nun, um, there's something about in Buddhism that you have to uh, focus on um, detachment. So we weren't allowed to see her uh, because we meant the most to her. So I, I'm not sure what that is I just know that's something that I've always been I'm just trying to figure out like what made her leave what how like you know my youngest aunt was 10 um my mom was like you know an adult by then she's like 20 or 19 and she had to fend for the whole family take care of the entire family but even though she left she's always been a huge part of our family and always like oh my mom she's incredible she's amazing this that this that and then I'm always that kid who's like well she's so amazing why she leave you um so it's something I'm trying to but you know I'm kind of Stopping with the writing because I was told I found out, like, you know, I think some people in the family weren't too thrilled that I was kind of mm. exploring that. So I don't know what mm. that is. Like, is that a genre? I don't know what is that contemporary, I, I, I'm embarrassed well, that I don't even know.
1: No, that's that's well, <laughs> honestly, what, what you're first of all, that's an incredible story, and of course, you would be interested in examining that, like, generational pain and trauma and history is so real Ooh, that's and a great so, way to say
0: it thank you i'm gonna yeah. have to borrow that <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes that that re- your story reminds me a little bit about emily xr pan the astonishing color of after and i would say that that book can be kind of difficult to categorize you know these are stories that kind of hop generations and deal with some magical elements and some really like sort of transcendent thinking kinds of things like that is i mean it makes sense to me that you would be that you would have trouble putting that cleanly in one category or the other because it totally does blur those boundaries which is the, the my custom of my favorite kinds of writing so i definitely would would have would put that out there as something to like think about as far as like considering where your book might go you know
0: yeah thank you um,
1: where the story would go but like so so that's so interesting
0: But sorry, uh, weaving it back to you, though, I'm like, I just like literally went off on a tangent. I am so sorry. But back to you about, you know, (laughs) about where Fernanda was asking, like, how do you make setting come alive when you write a contemporary novel? And, you know, the world building that she usually encounters, the advice is for fantasies. But for yours, she's saying how vivid and beautiful and amazing your setting comes alive. But it's not a fantasy. Uh, So uh, is there any advice that you can give to her? In regards yeah, to
1: that, totally. And I and I love this question. And actually, it's been interesting. I've actually been talking a lot about setting lately with "Tell Me Everything" coming out because I do think that being such an avid reader of genre fiction as th- through my whole life has really led me to like. I will sometimes read some contemporary stories and feel lost. I'm like, I don't know where we are. I don't know what this room looks like. I don't know what this what these people look like, what are they eating, how do they, like, visual to me is so, so, so important. So because in fantasy, you get so much leeway as a writer to like, I just finished um, King of Scars by Lee Bardugo. And mm. holy cow, queen of everything. Oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> it just is beyond, you know. And like, I think I told I told my aunt, like, I was like, this is ego bruisingly good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: Yes, she's just so good. But, but she, what she does so well is she like she, without taking you out of the story, at least for someone with patience for this, like a, a fantasy reader like me, it's like what are they, what are they wearing? What are they eating? How does it smell? What kind of world are they in? Uh, like, it's I just need that to feel immersed. So when I was writing my own book, I really kind of took that, those cues from fantasy writers and used that in my book. I wanted you to know like. It's uh, the um, tell me everything takes place in a town called Sudden Cove, which is based on Santa Cruz, California. Mm. And I and I wanted to just go into its thing. Like, not everybody knows what Santa Cruz is like, and not and certainly not everyone knows what I think Santa Cruz is like. And that to me is as a as a contemporary writer, assume that you are explaining to someone who is like from another continent maybe or from someone who was raised in like a small town somewhere far away from where you're describing like what does it mean to me that I notice the salt in the air and I want you to know what it what the history of this town feels like is it a small town does she know everyone's name or is it big enough that you are meeting strangers all the time um what is what I went to high school the high school I went to Um, you, you have, it was all made out of breezeways. You walk out of your classroom and you're outside because it's in California. So, and I, we didn't have lockers. Like there was some stuff about my high school experience that was so different from what I saw in movies and TV that I knew immediately going into my book. I had to explain that our quad was outside. No one ever ate in the cafeteria to the point where like when people said calf, I was like, what is calf? (laughs) What does that mean? Like, cause I always ate on the grass and we oh, had to wow. worry about skills.
0: Oh, up. that's so what? Yeah, Are yeah, you yeah. Serious?
1: So, yes, yeah, so like <gasps> that that's what my high school was and that's what I wanted to show in the book, but I knew I needed to like go out of my way to explain that and to build that world so that people would go along with me. So like I think just approaching it like that and saying like how would you ex- like because not only does it matter that you're putting your reader right in the present moment of where that chapter is happening, but they need to know like like my friend Samea Smea Daud, uh, who wrote Mirage, when she's describing something, she would notice like tile work or designs. Oh. You know, my friend Maureen would, would tell you what the food tasted like, what it smelled mm. like, because those are things that are so important to her and that I don't notice in the same way. So we're always explaining our present world to each other all the time. And as writers, we need to not assume that people are on the same page. Don't think just because you're writing contemporary that you're getting out of world building. In fact, you need to work extra hard to make sure that people are as immersed in your story as possible. So that's why there's like tons of side stories and Tell Me Everything. There's lots of background. There's lots of weird descriptors of people in the town. Like I, I wanted to go out of my way to make it feel like you're kind of going into another world even though you're just going into Santa Cruz, California. <sighs>
0: My lady, that was so damn good. I'm just sitting here and my mouth is open. I'm like, dang, she is so good at setting up worlds. Like even just now describing how you went to school, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I wish I went to your school. Oh, that was so so amazing. So I'm, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Okay, Sarah, you have been so freaking awesome. You've given us nearly two hours of your time. Do you mind if... Oh, thank you. Well, it was really fun for me. Um, Do you mind if I could wrap it up with two quick questions? Um, I usually do this at the end of the show. Um, The second to last would be, have you been to, uh, oh, sorry, not, uh, what are some small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals?
1: Ooh, what a good question. Um, I I am a huge fan of breaking down major goals into manageable chunks um i mentioned earlier having a bullet journal with to-do lists Mm -hmm. i you know it's it is it sounds so trite and so rote to say like 15 minutes a day and you and you chip away at it but but it's just true like and i found that taking a week away from writing altogether and I, i mean like i'm saying this even like I'm I'm a hypocrite of my own advice. Like this, this can't, <laughs> I don't even follow this all the time, but I do know that I feel better when every single day I open up that word document and I look at it and just plug away. Even if it's only for half an hour, I just, you feel like you're still in it. You still feel engaged with the story. So like, even if you're writing 500 words a week, those are 500 words that didn't exist before. Don't, don't um denigrate that. Don't counter, you know, remember how important that is so like i would say every week a great goal is like make sure that 3 days out of that week you engage with your work whether that's reading a, a research book or Or opening the word document and plugging away, or doing some research on the characters and making a Pinterest board, or whatever. You know, like engage with your story in some way, and also make sure that you're feeding the creative well. Go for walks. You know, there's a a book called The Artist's Way, and uh, it's a great thing for everybody um, to kind of read. It's just a template. She encourages you to wake up every morning and do what's called morning pages, and it's like not even about your book, but it's just like getting up and first thing just kind of checking in with yourself and free writing some stuff. And then every week she says to go on a, take yourself on a, on a creative date, basically like go to a museum or, um, you know, watch a documentary or whatever it is. So I think those are, those are manageable things you can do every week to make sure that you're really checking in with your artist self and, uh, helping to that, helping that self to thrive.
0: Oh, that was so good per the usual. <laughs> okay. So last question, Um, Are there any books that really left a huge impact on you or left a huge influence where you're like, damn, that's how you write a book? I know you mentioned Lee Bardugo's Mm. work recently um, and or any craft books that we can um, that you can advise the listeners to check out for their own
1: writing. Mm, Oh, yeah. Such a good question. Yeah. And, you know, I I mean, like I am like profoundly grateful for your compliment at the top of the show about it feeling like I read a lot of books because. That is what I when I open Lee Bardugo's books, I'm like, holy cow, this woman has read everything like you. And I'm actually reading also um, The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon.
0: Samantha Shannon. Oh, my holy God. I am. Yeah. Cow. OK, I'm hearing literally the best things about her. And I cannot even I I'm excited to dive into that one. I haven't had a chance to, but you definitely Dude. love it. Is amazing, it's
1: so amazing. This is like the biggest book I've tried to read in so long. It is massive, but also like, I I had to I actually had to go out of I had to get up out of bed and go get my highlighter and post-it notes because I was like, it has been so long since I read a book where I was like, I don't know what that word means, and it happened every other page. <laughs> wow! So it's like, this woman has just read so much. And you know what's funny? And this goes back to our conversation about Twilight. I, I've had. Many times in my life, books jumped out and just saved my life. Honestly, I mean, like it sounds exaggerated, but but it's not. And they're not always like highfalutin, you know, like Thomas Pinchon or something. Like, like uh, one of the first books that made a huge impression on me was *The Giver*, right, by Lois Lowry, which is just it it challenged me as a young person to open up and ask questions about Mm -hmm. the world around me, and then. I went through a really intensely hard time in uh, right as college was wrapping up, and I found Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series. And just getting to immerse myself in those books and escape the turmoil of my day-to-day was huge. Then Twilight, and then at, at another hard time in my life, I found uh, The Passage, which is now a TV show on Fox, but they call it a vampire book. It's kind of a mix of vampire zombies. It's The book is called The Passage by Justin Cronin, and it's trilogy. And that just that book was like eight hundred pages, and at the end of it, I was like, "No, eight hundred more!" Like it just was such wow. an escape for me, and it was, it was a, a book that I recommend to a ton of people. And then books like Sarah Czar, all of her books are so incredible for contemporary writers. Jandy Nelson, she won the Prince for um for a book that whose name is now escaping me, but but her book, "The Sky Is Everywhere," just completely like stripped me to the bolts. Uh, it was just such a stunning work and you know, the hunger games is just like a masterclass and structure. Mm-hmm. So uh, leave our I mean, there's so many like incredible, incredible, incredible writers right now for contemporary. I, I love everything Maureen Gu writes. She's only getting better with every book uh, Veronica Roth. The carve the mark series is like stunning. Um, you know, there's just like really inspiring people writing stuff all the time. But that, but that is the thing like read, voraciously, read constantly, read way outside your comfort zone. I read nonfiction when I want to take a break. And I just read H is for Hawk. And that just like also just threw me for a loop and just opened this whole new world for me. Um, And that was based on the recommendation of Alex London, who's another YA writer. But so like, I'm not a big craft book person, certainly read those and apply whatever their advice is that feels good to you. But I'm not the kind of person who will say, like, read on writing by Stephen King, read Burr by Burr by In Lamont. C- certainly do those things. But I found that talking to other people and trying things my own way and reading a ton has been made the biggest difference.
0: Wow. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you so much, Sarah. You have been um incredible on this freaking podcast um but can you let everyone know where they can find you online because okay and also give the shout out for your podcast as well as your personal
1: yes yes so uh so at sarah any s-a-r-a-h-e-n-n-i literally everything is just at sarah any uh twitter instagram all that good stuff and then the First Draft Podcast. You can find it everywhere at First Draft Pod. Also, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And I have a newsletter where I talk about both of those things. And you can sign up for that at either uh, SarahAny.com or FirstDraftPod.com.
0: And that wraps up our episode with Sarah Annie. Sarah, thank you so much for a beautiful and thoughtful conversation. I had such a great time talking with you. You shared incredible advice for our listeners that will be so impactful for them. So, thank you so much. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Sarah over on Twitter at Sarah and at First Draft Pod. If you love this podcast, I have a feeling you're going to love Sarah's podcast if you haven't already checked it out. So be sure to find First Draft Podcast in your podcast players. Don't forget to access all the resources and books mentioned in Sarah's episode and to download the writing prompt that she created exclusively for you, be sure to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Sarah dash any. At the very top of the show, we talked a bit about bookish in the berg. As most of you write young adult fiction, I have a feeling the Northeast newest teen book festival will hit the spot for you. Bookish in the Burg is proud to have 88 Cups of Tea as their podcast partner of choice. Check out their bonus episode releasing on March 14th, where we highlight one of our very own storytellers who created the Bookish in the Burg Festival. Head over to trustarts.org bookish to learn more. Bookish in the Burg happens alongside the Pittsburgh Humanities Festival, a production of the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. Presented in partnership with Carnegie Mellon University, the Humanities Festival features interviews, intimate conversations and select performances focused on art, literature, music, science, policy, politics, and more in a lively, entertaining, and accessible format. The Pittsburgh Humanities Festival is smart talk about stuff that matters. To learn more about the Pittsburgh Humanities Festival, check out trustarts.org slash smart talk. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you next Thursday for that bonus episode featuring our very own storyteller who created the Bookish in the Berg Festival. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.